Are you ready to begin? I am. Hey, this is Sad Girl Syllabus, a commentary on media through the ages. Each season, we'll have a new syllabus to dive into. I'm Bethany. And I'm Mary. And we are two girls. Too sad. Let's jump into the syllabus. <laughs> Cracks me up every time. Uh, I know. <laughs> so uh, welcome back to Catholic Drag, our second season. We discuss religion, Christianity, faith, Catholic branding, Jesus branding, uh, religious Christian branding in pop culture. Um and we've been, last episode, we talked about the hot priest trope, uh, which has been very iconic. <laughs> Desiring men of the cloth. Yeah, yeah all over. Sort of salacious. <laughs> the <opening>. seminary gossip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seminary gossip. Um, and yeah, I, I think last time we also talked about... Um, the resurgence of Christianity and pop culture and talked about mm -hmm. mentioned specifically the Met Gala and how that brought um, a very almost highbrow because um, it's the Met uh, this like highbrow art visual culture that that brings Christianity back into pop culture but also Kanye West which I totally forgot about <laughs> Kanye West is like very integral in the Jesus branding because he integrates gospel music into mm -hmm. his into his music but then he also had sunday service and right. all of his merch says holy spirit on it so he was also pretty uh yeah it's a big part of the brand there yeah yeah um i also was thinking like also kendrick lamar like tons of imagery oh, yeah. in a lot of his uh special music videos um of very yeah like um of Jesus and disciples and things like that. So it's, it's kind of fascinating where it's reappearing and, and where it's um, really used. And that's everything from movies to memes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, discussing it all this season, but um, particularly today, uh, we're talking about uh, the church in bad faith and um, what does it put when more media attention is focused on the Christian religion, particularly uh, the Catholic church and Catholic priests in this way. And there's an, um, yeah, sort of my overarching question is what did that, when there was so much media attention on, um, on sexual abuse in the Catholic church within the, within the clergy, um, what does that media attention, first of all, there's, there's media attention on it. People are looking, but then the, the Catholic church has to, has to engage in a PR, mm -hmm. uh, strategy and damage control. And the Catholic church does have to rebrand. And I know also last time we talked about, uh, the Pope and Pope Francis playing this really, uh it feels like pope francis is playing a role for the church like to to be very um to take the church in a totally different direction and to um it seems like he is instrumental in the rebranding and i don't think that the the man the pope the man is uh, inauthentic but i think that it was his election into, uh, into the yeah. papal seat was was strategic for sure 
Um, but that's interesting. But it's interesting because then that PR strategy then bleeds into how everybody else interacts with it on the internet, with memes and um, and how curators are thinking about organizing exhibitions, things like that. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say like. And this is also a reflection of my own engagement with the Catholic Church, so I'll take this with a grain of salt. But it felt like middle school through high school, um, the sexual abuse um, in the Catholic Church and those court cases were in the news all the time. That It was a huge discussion. And then yeah. by the time I got to college, it was much less of a discussion And in the years prior, and now I feel like we're talking about it again. Yeah. Where those court cases have come more into the um, attention. Um, and I just don't feel like the Met would have done like a Catholic imagery 10 years prior. Like they would not have done a gala yeah. 10 years prior um, because of what the kind of the current conversation in the media about the church was. Hmm. And then with Francis, they have this like it's in a different light. It's you don't have to talk about that. You know, like they yeah didn't need to address anything like that. It's like it's as though Pope Francis is sort of like anti-capitalist very like pro um pro, like very accepting of lgbt uh identifying people and accepting them into the faith saying like if you're you know almost reversing a lot of these stances about who can receive communion and when etc and it's almost like oh well, the church is cool now so then the met so, uh, an institution like the met is like oh hey we have a whole cloister yeah um yeah yeah and and then, and, but then, of course, there was that other podcast, like, what, four or five years ago that uh, brought to light. The, there was one very specific um, sexual abuse case that they sort of, like, cracked. It was – they sort of cracked the crime, cracked the case. Um, and that was actually about a priest that, that taught at my high school and in the 80s or early 90s, I guess, um, uh, had been writing letters to students, to boys. And oh – and, and yeah, there, someone came forward to this podcast who like sort of uh, brought that to light. Anyway, so there's, um, yeah, a lot of strategy. But also that said, and maybe we can get into this a little bit later on, but uh, there have been bad, there's been bad faith in the church for centuries, of course. Um, right. And House of Borgia, where it's like this incredibly incestuous family. <laughs> um, and people are, I mean, it just humans are fallible that's a very like catholic thing to say <laughs> and that's and but and that's da a dangerous thing to say too because it's often used as an excuse but anyway right. there's um bad priest is uh not a trope it's a reality and it's been going on for right. centuries so that's that's my point yeah there. and you see it you know yeah like you see it reappear in media i'm actually kind of surprised that there isn't more like feature films or like fictional films mm -hmm. on the topic um because it it's huge it's so prevalent um it's been so awful and has yeah been going on for centuries <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and I like thought of a few examples. Obviously, there's Doubt, the play in the movie, um, the movie Bad Education, you know, that all kind of address it to some extent, um, some more than others, I guess. Um, but yeah, not too many. Um, yeah. There's also like this idea of the uh, inversion of what the bad priest is, like a bad priest mm -hmm. that is not necessarily contingent on sexual abuse, but like 
a bad priest who is, uh, you know, a subject of isolation. So a film like First Reformed, for example, mm. um, or even taking this same sort of concept and turning it the other way where it's a bad person becoming a priest, something like Corpus Christi, um, which is, you know, both of those are incredible <laughs> films. But I think this idea of, you know, this feeling of isolation and this position of power that sort of changes the perspective that like a human being views themselves and the world uh, as it adheres to them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is totally right on. And sad girl listeners, that voice that you hear <laughs> uh, is our very special guest, uh, Robert Kalani, who is a cinematographer of Procession, which came out this year and is available on Netflix. Um, and I'm just going to do your, your bio now, Robert, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, Robert is an enemy. <laughs> enemy. Robert is an Emmy award-winning director and cinematographer who's based in New York City. And he shot on projects with David Byrne, Nan Golden, Laura Portress, Japanese Breakfast, and the Safdie Brothers. His work is publicly displayed at the MoMA, the Brooklyn Museum, Museum of Fine Art Boston, the Museum Moving Images. He's the director of photography for the 2021 Netflix film Procession, which we were talking about today, and it had its world premiere at the Telluride Film Festival. We are so excited that you are our very, very first guest, too, on the pod. Yes, so. the first guest of the pod. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> get a plaque that says that and put it on my wall. Um, An honorary honor, sad honor, here. Wow. Honorary sad honorary girl. Honorary yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, uh, we're so excited to, um, to invite you and, and to have you here. Um, and, and because it is, it does procession this film that you worked on um is so uh is so relevant to the topic it's a um it is a documentary uh that follows the story of six men who uh were victims of sexual abuse in the catholic church in the united states um in in the midwest region region spanning several states and the documentary recounts this uh a, a piece of the healing journey is how I interpret it, a piece of the healing journey for these, for these men, um, getting closure and, uh, and reconstructing the narrative of, of their abuse and their, um, and their experiences through drama therapy, which is so interesting. And, uh, to me, it, it encompasses this, it's almost, it's, it's, almost very meta but it encompasses this like use of media because they're engaging with um theatrical uh writing almost like a like writing scripts and engaging also with um constructing the sets and building out this um building out the imagery and 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 how and what was a part of their experiences you know things like the um, the objects that are used, the talismans that are used as part of the the Catholic faith, and um, and they and they engage with the symbols and the imagery of the church to help reconstruct this narrative um, of what happened to them to help them. Um, I think, as the the therapist in the in the film says, to to contain contain the experience and to and to reengage with it in a way that's that's healing. Um, so it's a super, super interesting film and a really, really fresh take on, um, to me at least, it was a super fresh take on how to handle 
these stories of sexual abuse. Uh, so yeah, thanks for being here. <laughs> Do you want to um, open yeah. up with just telling us a little bit about your experience making it, how it came to, how you came to be involved and um, how it came to fruition? Yeah, sure. Um, so the film is directed by Robert Green, who's a filmmaker that I've worked with on his past two films. Um, and his producer, Bennett Elliott, I've done many films with. Um, and at the, at the conclusion of his previous film, Bisbee 17, um, sort of the penultimate scene is surrounding a deportation in Bisbee, Arizona, where a group of people were illegally deported. Um, and it is the same kind of constructed scene um, revisiting the past that we do in procession. And at the end of it, one of the people acting said, wow, this is the biggest group therapy session I've ever been a part of. Um, and it sort of got Robert and the team thinking about, you know, is, can film be therapy? Is there a therapeutic uh, angle to like this form? Um, and so we started like asking those questions um, and simultaneously, this report came out of Kansas City about over 400 mm -hmm. priests um, being accused of sexual misconduct. Um, and the lawyer that was representing the most of them was this woman named Rebecca Randalls. Um, and our team got in contact with her and we started working with her and she essentially like casted the film, picked these six very unique men. Um, and we began the process of getting to know them um, and it was a process that took four years. Um, and we just started like going deeper and deeper and deeper into, um, mm. how the language of cinema could address trauma. Can it address trauma? Um, you know, we started asking ourselves these questions and then, you know, simultaneous to that, you know, hundreds of stylistic questions. Mm -hmm. How do you make a film? in the church about the church. Um, yeah, and so that was a, a, a long road that we that we walked down with like tons of references and tons of uh, research and decisions and, and planning. Um, yeah, so I would say like that's the toe and, in the water version of, uh, of how I got involved. And, and being the DP is such a f what i think about making a film in a church about the church being the dp is so integral because the church is so visual and i mean you think about the lineage of the catholic church and how um you know they ha like the art of the church was so important prior to the printing press prior to things being translated into uh languages and people becoming literate the visuality was the language um, you had in medieval times, you had these in very intense visions of hell to deter people, to make people do the right thing. Um, but then also to tell the story of Jesus Christ, of um, Easter, of Christmas, the nativity, things like that. And so you're you're coming at this from at, at this point of like looking back several thousands of years and um, or several hundred years. And so then you had this enormous library of imagery to work with and, um, and, and to, to put it in the context of this, of this, uh, these cases, 
the sexual abuse. And so what is that? I want to know your thoughts on that. What was that like? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, uh, it was a, an incredible process to like be able to sort of conceive visually what the film should look like and how it should echo what our consciousness of religious imagery should be. Um, so in pre-production, I visited many, many churches. Um, wow. I went to Italy and was looking at churches, the way light uh, plays like within the room, use of uh, mm. depth, um, and then researching lots of painters. At one point, like I was obsessed with the idea of only doing single source lighting and making everything Whoa. look like the Caravaggio painting very, very quickly became like absurd. Wow. Um, but there are, there are moments in there, there are moments in there where we do do the single source lighting and have, I, I won't say as grand as uh, <laughs> something that looks like Carpaccio, but there are moments mm. where there is a Carpaccio influence there. Um, and then also like looking back into um, the history of cinema and how visually um, spirituality or religion is represented, watched, rewatched every Tarkovsky film, reread uh, Paul Schrader's book on transcendental cinema, um, the, the work of Robert Brisson, tons of Brisson, um, you know, Diary of the Priest and Ahazar Balthazar, um, and just the sense of like, what is spirituality and what is religion mm -hmm. um, in terms of cinema and what is the difference between those two things um, and how can one be cast in a perverse light that like utilizes the power of its imagery to be this kind of oppressive thing you know and at the same time yeah. the film that we're made that we made is not an an anti-religious film or an anti-spiritual film um and in fact a lot of our subjects are still either quite spiritual mm -hmm. and in some cases quite religious so how do we not disempower those images or take away sort of the magic that they contain while being truthful to sort of the horrific nature of mm -hmm. the story that we're telling. Well, yeah, I definitely wanted to, to talk about, well, so many things in there. Uh, the lighting in this movie, incredible. Like it's yes. just, I mean, first of all, Robert, it's a gorgeously shot movie. It's, it's really beautiful. Um, but the lighting on especially in some of those scenes that i think you're mentioning are just it's amazing um but i, I was thinking about like wow you know the catholic church because yeah. it was a patron like um of many artists has shaped a lot of um western conception of art in general of of images right like our 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 worldview on images um and then how do you yeah, handle that um sort of dominating um, presence in some ways, um, history with also, um, you know, making the, sure the focus and the, the detail and, and the attention and, um, care, which I think the movie does incredibly, just the amount of care in that movie is with, uh, the participants and with the, the six men that are, um, participating in the film and like how you balance, like, the church as this like sort of monolith and then these individual stories and giving them their due um, without also being like 
re-traumatizing without, um, I mean, there's a huge discussion in the movie about uh, how they want their scenes to play and how they would like to be represented, which is is so fascinating that it, like you're mm -hmm. having that conversation in the movie and then you're seeing a movie about it, um, about how these, these people are being represented. So yeah, it's just, to me, I was like, I don't, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that um, question. For sure. I mean, the guiding principle throughout, <laughs> amazing question. Um, the, gui the guiding principle throughout the entire film yeah. <laughs> was um, that, you know, the stories of these six men, Ed Gavigan, Dan Lorraine, uh, Michael Sandridge, Tom Viviano, Mike Foreman, and Joe Eldridge, um, the, the guiding principle was always to sort of, you know, work in service of these guys um, and be grateful that they were sharing their stories with us and being collaborators with us in front of the camera and behind the camera. Um, so all of the like aesthetic decisions that like I had the privilege to be able to sort of like zoom around in like the wonderland of like visuals um, were always sort of secondary to um, making sure that we were doing what was right by these men. Um, I don't know, I've got a couple of like fragments of like mm -hmm. stories and ideas that I think like relate to your question. Um, yeah, so I will uh, unfurl them in a kind of whimsical way, I suppose. Um, every church yeah. that I visited, um, I like started looking for certain things. And one of them was like how the Stations of the Cross was, uh, portrayed so it's always very different and I, I became like obsessed with this sort of style of flat imagery that I think is indicative of like powerful Russian religious iconography you know this kind of like boxy sort of flat look um and so we were constantly trying to figure out like how do we make it look really really flat mm. how does everything sort of exist on one plane um because there's something so inhuman about it, um, visually speaking. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, like mm. there's like this portrait of Andrei Rublev mm. where it's like him in this kind of yeah. like prismatic background. And there's also these like other friars around him, but they're all kind of like different sizes, but they feel like they're in the same space. Yeah. And so we, came up with this idea of, and you see it at the beginning of the film and the middle of the film, yeah. during like the church service when the little boy is walking around with the censer, um, we shoot our wides from the very, very back of the room, um, you know, like a hundred feet back and then zoomed all the way in so that there is this uh, flattening of the image. So what normally would be filmed and I apologize in advance, knowing that this is an auditory experience mm. and that I'm going to like speak to visuals, but you know, what normally would be filmed, you know, with like a 20 millimeter lens, we would shoot with like a 250 millimeter lens so that the sense of voyeurism is there, this sort of God's eye view 
that <laughs> makes everything into this like very, very flat shape. Um, yeah, and so that was like one visual trick that we were trying to do. Wow. And it's really effective because you get a sense of, well, when I, when I was watching it, you, you definitely got this sense of, um, you got this sense of being watched or surveyed. Yeah. Observed. Or, or surveying. Yeah. Yeah. You had, you had that sense that, um, um, that I think comes with, I'm trying to articulate the, uh, like, it's hard for me to put it into words, but the sense of, of being watched that you feel when you're a little kid in mass. Were you were you raised in any kind of faith, Robert? No, not really. I grew up very oh, okay. non-religious, but mm. I am culturally a Jew. So the oh, okay. world of the church was completely, um, really only existed in like artistic and cinematic terms to me. Um, I really only knew the mm. church from films or from like mm. art history, visiting churches mm -hmm. and um, there's always, to that end, there's always been something like kind of forbidden in a way. Um, not that that was ever like put upon me, but I suppose I put it upon myself, you know, that the church was always this other that existed. Um, and for that reason, it was, you know, always very interesting to like, anytime I went to a church, you know, in France or Italy or New York City or wherever, it always felt like I was sneaking in, like there's, huh. I was doing something I shouldn't be doing. And maybe there oh, is mm -hmm. uh, something to that. Yeah. Mary and I have, yeah. and you probably heard this from the prior episode, but we have been going to Christian Catholic schools our entire lives. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so there's this I don't know if Mary you can speak to this too but there's there is very much a uh sense of in the same way of going into a church during non-church hours you do feel automatic like immediately watched you do feel like I feel a deep deep sense of mm -hmm. self-discipline when I go into a church I, I know exactly how I'm supposed to behave but then also being a part of the mass there is it's this like relentless every single week you go as a little kid and you have and you're doing little kid things like fidgeting around moving around and then there's always someone telling you it's usually your mom <laughs> telling you to like shut up and be still so then by the time you're in uh, right. like 12 or 13 you already have it ingrained in your body to be like i'm being watched do you feel that mary no definitely it is um there is like a presence to the church, you know, the, the a feeling when you step in one, um, you know, even after years of not practicing, definitely comes yeah. like rushing back. <laughs> and I think actually about that moment in procession in one of the scenes um, where all of the congregation's head turns to look back at the um, the kid who's now up on, uh, behind them. And that, that feeling, um, that everyone's watching you. Also, if you, you know, there's so many steps in a mass that you, here's now when you bow or when you kneel, you don't bow. Um, <laughs> when you kneel, when you sit, um, when you say this, that, um, you know, there's like, oh, what if I mess up and everyone sees, you know, like, for sure. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, feeling like of being watched yeah certainly yeah and there's so much pageantry 
And I, I think, you know, hand in hand with that pageantry is perhaps this sort of theatrical element, you know, and you're yeah. out on this stage. And if you, if you miss your line, then everyone knows you missed your line. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But I think even for, uh, from an outsider's perspective, going into these sort of holy spaces feels um, there is a sense of reverence because the architecture and the construction of these buildings and perhaps something else in the ether like makes it feel that as though you're in in a space that like evokes the need for reverence mm -hmm. um you know and i think thousands of years of intentionality to elicit that feeling from people um has certainly paid off um they they know what they're doing <laughs> with the students yeah know? yes yeah um, yeah, they've had a few years to study the effects. <laughs> yeah. But but to the end of being an outsider, religiously speaking, I think it uh, was perhaps vital for me um, because it allowed sort of my camera, my perspective to be m perhaps much more playful mm -hmm. than it would have been if I had sort of these ties to... Uh, you know, to the to the holy ground that I was like treading upon, um, and especially in terms of the stories that we were telling, to be able to be somewhat divorced from, um, mm -hmm. you know, where I'm coming from, mm -hmm. uh, felt in terms of self preservation probably necessary. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. and certainly pairs well then with the collaborators um, you're working with who have deep deep ties that they're bringing to light in, in, in this movie. So it, it, yeah, Al, it's a balance to it. Um, there's, and an entry point, I think yeah. probably for a lot of people too. Yeah. And there's an interesting tension too, sure. that with, um, with some of the stories, there's, there seems to be a desire, um, to go back to the scene where it happened, but then also a repelling, when you actually get there and it's it's really overwhelming to be uh you know thinking about it and think it, you can you can i can hear it when um in these in these men's voices where they're they're sort of like no i need to go back to the scene where it happened so that i can confront it and like and face it head on and sort of like face a fear head on to help me get over it but then it but it, it really does become so overwhelming to be in the presence of that of that place um, and it's a, it, it's a very, it's powerful to watch that kind of putting yourself in such a vulnerable place to go back to where it happened. Um, and then also there's, uh, and, and that's, that is for anybody who has ever experienced any kind of traumatic event in their life. Um, but then, uh, but then, yeah, when it comes to something that is so, um, and you can see it. You can see it in terms of like the the lake house, and you know something that is not explicitly a church, um, but has ties to these uh, to these experiences. But then also when some of the men go back into the church, and you know being in a confessional or putting on the cassock, putting on the the um, liturgical robes, holding the incense, the censor, yeah, um, that it's 
you want to be able to confront it and to be able to say that this object has no power over me or this is what I'm, you know, my, my what I'm projecting, I guess. But you want to be able to say that this that these things have no power. But then it's also like, wow, they like I really do have to overcome this, the power of it, um, which is an interesting push and pull. Yeah. Yeah, there were so many um, tactile sort of touchstones in terms of space and objects that became trigger points for each of the guys. Um, and I think every collaborator on the film at some point, you know, had a moment or multiple mm -hmm. moments of being like, I can't do this. Um, I need to walk away. Um, and so it was an important part of the process yeah. to afford that space and to never push and to always be like, walk, yeah. you know, walk away, walk away. Um, because it is so fresh and I believe, you know, when you're, when you're not only in the space, but you're wearing the clothes, you're holding these relics, it feels so real. It becomes truly real. There's a moment in the film, this is not even a negative moment, but uh, it's so powerful when we're in Wyoming and Ed Gavigan walks up this staircase to where the bell is. And he gets to like ring this bell that he rang as like a 12 year old boy. And you mm -hmm. see him sort of become a child again. And you see the other guys in the room sort of become 12 year olds. And there's such like glee and, and lightness. Um, and to see that kind of as the stark counterpoint to, you know, what we are aware of um, in terms of the story shows how, uh, how close these memories and how present mm -hmm. like the trauma mm. always is it's well and and church is sort of like a playground because you're when you're going to a catholic school like that is so part of the social life and it's really fucking bizarre sometimes how much how close your childhood is to that religion because like I think back to going to church I went to, I had to go to church twice a week every week while I was growing up because like once on Sundays with my family and then every Wednesday with my school and uh and it was definitely like a social hour it felt like that I mean you weren't because like you had to the, the ritual of like walking from the school building over to the church and um you have this break in the routine of school and then all this stuff but then there's also like this really weird the bizarre part is that like oh, I'm going to sit next to Freddy because I want to mm -hmm. hold Freddy's hand during the Our Father. <laughs> and it's, it's so weird how much of your growing up, you're at like that prepubescent moment too is such a part of that. So Totally. Yeah. yeah. And it becomes representative of that. And there's also like so much sensory memory, you know, the smell of like, the incense or like the taste of the wine, these things that like, you know, if you're like in the East Village and you walk into like a head shop and you smell incense, you're probably not like, oh <laughs> God. But uh, I'm sure there's like something very specific about like the incense mm -hmm. in the censer. Um, yeah, stuff like no, that. No, there's actually, there's, um, I think at the very beginning, um, actually in Wyoming, um, when you see a mass service, um, is filmed and I forgot the way the intonation that priests do um, where they're sort of singing 
and it's always sounds a little goofy <laughs> but it's also very serious and I like I felt I was like oh I'm 13 again like I was like I just remember like it sounded exactly the same as every other priest I'd ever heard do that um and it was so specific because it's like sort of chanting sort of singing kind of talking um and it's just like a very specific uh vocal inflection um and I hadn't ever seen that I think in a movie yeah. that that um that phrasing uh filmed actually it really brought me back <laughs> oh, that's that was uh, oh, that was wow. an Easter mass. Wow. We were there on Easter day. Yeah, oh my really God. intense. Yeah, I um, you see some of it the the, the like filming um, location uh, difficulties, um, just uh, <laughs> getting to into a church and filming, and also in other spaces. Um, in in the movie itself in procession um you see those difficulties but i can't i have to imagine that it was even harder um than what you see to get access yeah yeah yes certainly um there were a lot of people that did not want us to make this movie um for sure um there were also a lot of people that helped us make the movie um and i will say there is a faction of the catholic church that really does want change and does want um progress um that being said yes we were stopped many times we went to so many churches um in kansas and missouri trying to find a church that will let Mm. us film these like big kind of cinematic scenes Mm. it took years um to find someone that would allow us um and since the release of the movie yes there have been many organizations catholic organizations that have like urged you know their parishioners to not let their kids watch the movie because it could damage their faith Um, yes um and things like that which is a great advertisement for us i guess but i feel like the catholic church never learns that or these organizations in the catholic church that when you say don't go see this movie immediately people are going to see it because you said that yeah, but also, okay. who the fuck cares about damaging their these young kids' faith? Like these, like people have been damaged far worse. Pe- people's lives have been damaged. It's just so, it's outrageous. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, this is um off topic for one moment. Just to ask the two of you: Have you seen Benedetta? Not yet. We were talking about. Oh, we were this just talking about it. Just yeah. The other day. <laughs> We were like, should we do like an episode on it this season or <laughs> another season idea that we have later? <sighs> I think you would both get a kick out of it. But we, we're looking at the protest photos of that. So yeah. yeah. When will the endless insults <laughs> <laughs> The endless insults against the Catholic Church. <laughs> it makes me think that like, I wonder if people also think that these sort of post-ironic meme pages if like a lot of religious people uh and lay people because it seems it seems more so that lay people are the ones who are protesting who are really vocal about it um i mean you have like official word from archbishops or whatever who say like you should not go 
see this film or like this film shouldn't be made kind of thing. And uh, but then but it's always lay people who are very, very vocal. And I wonder, too, if, if like the impetus for writing, when will the endless insults <laughs> against Jesus end? Like, I wonder if they're also frustrated by all the memes, like, you know, all of yeah. the sort of sarcastic poking fun at the Catholic Church. Um, uh, yeah, if, if that's sort of frustrating them. But <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'm sure that it is. <laughs> But it's also the the uh, like the imagery of the Catholic Church because they've been that's like the imagery and the visuals or the the it's not even the visuals it's multi sensory um, the the as you said the intentionality put behind it that's the driving force and that's what makes it so potent to become a part of internet pop culture internet meme culture um, and sort of like web two like social social internet you know, people, people are processing this shit. Like whether, I mean, whether or not you had a bad experience in the Catholic church, it's just, it's such a part of your life. If you were raised that way, um, that you have to process it. <laughs> and how do you do that? But with the imagery of it, of it itself. Certainly, <laughs> certainly. And I, th I think simultaneous to that, like all of these aspects of the Catholic church or of really any institution that is seated in a position of power, um, the abuses of power are not new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. These are things that have always happened. And we just live in a time now where largely due to the internet and to social media, there's more of a voice for people that were at one point voiceless. And that also sort of takes away power from these sort of gargantuan institutionalized mm -hmm. uh, like facets of society mm -hmm. that at one point seemed untouchable. Um, so I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think this movie surprised me by just, yeah, that it does that, that it allows that space for these men and how, I mean, I feel like it sounds trite when I say it, but like unfathomable braveness for these collaborators. Like I just, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I, I don't think I could ever do something like that. Um, and to be that vulnerable also afterwards and on film, <laughs> like, yeah, that is uh, truly incredible. And then, yeah, to be able to share that with others, like, wow, bravery beyond. Truly. Yeah. yeah. The, the strength of each of the collaborators in the film um, was unlike any other experience I've had cinematically in my work. Um, yeah, to watch them sort of like go through what they went through um, to revisit it and to really attempt to, and I think mostly uh, successfully take back the power mm -hmm. um, that disempowered them at such a young age and to sort of revisit these places and to change the perspective at which the shame is being thrown upon them mm -hmm. um, is unimaginable. Yeah. Surely they are all far stronger than I. <laughs> and me. <laughs> um, it's, that's another interesting thing too, that uh, um, there's this, the return to innocence, which you see on their faces 
um, when they go like with Ed Gavigan ringing the bell and finding this childlike, playful demeanor. Um, and and there's this in a lot of therapeutic school of schools of thought you want to be able to reach back and return to your inner child and that's a really important part of a healing process and especially recounting a narrative and and taking back the power in it is to be able to take care of yourself when your younger self and then but what was also really powerful to me watching it was seeing them coach the little boy who was cast as mm -hmm. as their um as their younger selves and that also and it was also so powerful this this uh expressing reading to reading a letter to your younger self to this to this little boy like that is such a um it's so tangible to to be able to coach this boy like tell the boy how to act so that then you can revisit this memory but it's still outside of yourself um is was striking it was very striking to me it made me very emotional <laughs> yeah certainly as soon as Tarek who is that boy um who's an incredible actor yeah. as soon as he got involved in the project um things really changed because um all of the guys then had the ability to really act as directors mm. and direct him um and there was this sense of caring and protection that came from all of them um who certainly looked at him as a proxy for themselves in youth um and so it was really astounding to sort of watch the the cinematic form um take shape and for them to you know act as directors with an actor but also as these sort of like nurturing protectors mm. um in these spaces that he has no uh, connection to he has no source of trauma mm -hmm. in those spaces mm -hmm. but they surely do um, and so their acumen around him was incredible to watch also like the idea that Dan and Michael came up with together that one boy would represent all of them um, mm -hmm. was such a revelation in the film um, and I feel like really spoke to I hope the universe the universal nature of what these kinds of abuses of power mean um hmm. yeah. yeah especially I mean in this case it's this one essentially parish that has four, four different Over priests four. yeah um yeah. who yes. Yeah, and 400 cases in Kansas City. I was, I mean, you know how bad it is. You read about it and then to hear people talking about it, it's, I mean, just mind-blowing. The, the vastness of the, the problem um, and how long it went on for. Um, still goes yeah. on for. Yeah. Um, yeah, but to have just one sort of actor proxy of all of um these men and to have these uh, the way the scenes kind of in the in the documentary kind of bleed into each other um really gives like the the feeling of of that vastness of how frequently and often that this happened to people yeah um, yeah 
Um, there's also like, uh, I, I was, ha I'm having a thought there's, cause again, there's this idea that I brought up at the beginning of this conversation, this, the bad priests and, and priests acting in bad faith in the church is nothing new. And, um, you know, you hear about horrific stories that are, that are also separate from sexual abuse too. Um, incestuous, uh, political gains, um, like the Borgias, uh, like sort of these, um, the, when, at the moment in Catholic history where there was like two priests, there was one in France and, one, and the papal seat in Rome. And so you have these like politically ambitious men too. Um, but then also I was just telling Mary yesterday, I was reading this, um, I'm in the midst of reading this person's memoir, this person who was integral to the, uh, uh, his Taos, New Mexico. And she brings to light all of these uh, stories about northern New Mexico, which are the the religion, the Catholic religion in northern New Mexico is extremely intense and layered and textured um, because it's this, uh, there were many very zealous, overzealous Spanish priests who were sort of, uh, you get the sense, it's implied that you get, that they were exiled from Europe to come to the new world because they were just a little bit too, too intense, too crazy. In the same way that the Puritans, um, the the Puritans were sort of banished from England and told to colonize the New World because they were just um, taking their religion too far. But in any case, uh, you have this like pre-Renaissance, very medieval uh, brotherhood that settles in northern New Mexico. They're called the Penitentes, and they they self-flagellate and um, uh, and they use they they cultivate and harvest cactus to create whips to whip themselves um and uh and then they also crucify them I, they they hang themselves on a yeah yes i know i i have seen videos of these guys yeah yeah really? super intense yeah they they are and it was a very secret brotherhood because they were so it's very of the flesh um is my point <laughs> um but then there's also this story of, I was telling Mary about it yesterday, the story of this priest, uh, Padre Martinez, um, who is very, like, I've, being from New Mexico, I've heard that name around, bandied about all the time, and I've, I've even seen where he's buried in Taos, but I never really knew his story until I was reading this book just yesterday. Uh, and he was politically ambitious to the point, to a point where he had the first American territory governor who governed New Mexico, he, he, uh, organized his assassination, um, because he was, because he tried to suppress the church and was, um, and wanted the church to play less of a, less of a leadership role. And so Padre Martinez was, yeah, organized this assassination and then framed Taos Pueblo Native Americans, uh, and sort of blamed it on the Native Americans and made it about this, Native American U.S. government conflict, and um, yeah, so bad priest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like ultimate bad priest. And so, um, but you know, and I'm thinking like, how did I never? I've heard this man's name, and there's like Padre Martinez. Like, if you go in northern New Mexico, it's like the Padre Martinez gift shop, and it's like a Bible store, you know. Um, and I'm like, how is this? How do people not tell this history? And why am I just learning about it like 
yeah, uh, through, through this, the legend from this other person who is, she's telling a, like, second degree account kind of thing. She's hearing it by hearsay when she moves to Taos. Anyway, so I think about, like, the trajectory of the church and how there's, has to be multiple generations of these bad men who commit atrocious acts in service to their political ambition and using their faith as, like, a scapegoat to, um, excuse them and so another thing that makes um what i think is interesting about specifically using cinema and um documenting these stories through film and retelling these stories um is it really and i guess that this we've been saying this all along for this whole conversation is you use the imagery of the church to then reclaim the power back from it because a a record of a story about this guy in northern New Mexico, the records can get lost and people can choose what to what to teach and what to retell um, kind of thing. But then there's there's now that we live in this age where um, you can stream a film into every, anybody's household, um, you know, you can make things very widely available through the Internet. Cinema itself is, is a very democratizing media form. Um, mm. Yeah, that was a my long-winded story about <laughs> making imagery available widely available to to reclaim the power so. for sure i mean that yeah those yeah that's fascinating <laughs> uh yeah i don't know I, when you were talking about that group and about uh yeah i, I it made me think about uh, have you read the the devils of ludon no you know this Mm-mm. it's a book about, I think, like, 16th century or 15th century priest in Loudon, France, who was kind of this, like, playboy character, but he was a priest. And then, like, he rejected some, like, nun who was in love with him, and she began this, like, campaign to, like, pin him as a warlock, and he was eventually burned at the stake. (laughs) It was, it was, in, in the 1970s, Ken Russell made a film yes. about it called The Devil. I know that one. It's based on a true story. <laughs> well, I didn't know that um, <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And that film is an incredible film. But it's, uh, yeah, so, but it, go, it goes so, so very far back um, uh, to this abuse of power, yeah. you know, the man of the cloth as this kind of like person who's next to God yeah, yeah. Um, and chooses to be a bad boy (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh i get yeah the devils um i was we were thinking about putting that on the syllabus this season so that's incredible should should. (laughs) and the book book, the devils of udon in in its own right also worth worth checking out would would recommend that's amazing I also, in addition to this, I feel like just bringing it back to procession itself, giving that imagery, reclaiming that imagery is also um, equally important to these specific cases because they've been told over the years and um, through their legal battles, through being publicly, publicly telling their story, that their story is wrong, like all of them. Um, that they're lying or that they don't remember, or, but that they're wrong. Um, and so it is kind of incredible to then, yeah, reuse the Catholic imagery as a reclamation after 
how many years, decades of the Catholic Church um, telling them that they're, they're lying or they're misremembering. Certainly. And you see, uh, you see all of the filming inside of a confessional, you can see all of the um, barriers of protection that the priests have too, that makes it that you sort of put the pieces together, where you're saying like, Oh, yeah, actually, it's really easy for the church to discredit these men's stories, and hundreds of men. Um, it's really easy to discredit them because there's no there's never any proof so to say you can't really collect proof because they um like i think back to the one scene in the film where um one of the men get he gets really frustrated or he has like a trigger point with this the lock on the confessional door he's like why is yeah. that there but you know like and that's just one pinpoint but then you think about like oh the confessional how, who knows what goes on in there and and it's this confidential place and, and it's really easy to take advantage of that i mean again it's not um uh, obviously not every time you go to confession is the priest like creepy and weird i have fortunately never had that experience and so obviously it doesn't happen every time however it is a mechanism that that bad men can use to their advantage certainly i mean like the construction of a church or at least of the churches that i had experience filming within have all these little hiding places yeah. you know like the sacristy has all these little secret rooms and there's all these like locked doors and sort of veils of secrecy and everything is contingent on like privacy which can be you know the idea of like there's something holy or spiritual happening in here co-opting that idea and using it for a closed door yeah. um, and how easy it is from that position of power to sort of decree that and not be questioned yeah um is very scary but it's the same thing that happens in in every institution of power as soon as you give somebody you know a badge mm -hmm. or uh you know a fancy desk in a big office um as soon as there's a closed door there's always people that are going to take advantage of that mm -hmm. um and so, yeah, I think as storytellers, it's important to find people that will speak out and to help them tell their story and to elevate them and give them the platform and the space to, to do that thing, because it's the only way that light will be shed on these sort of systemic problems. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beautifully said. <laughs> Um, can I, can I go back and yeah. I just thought of something, but it was like from 45 minutes ago. Um, um, yeah, when I said shed light on these problems, I thought about something in regards to the light on the film that mm -hmm. I did want to express, um, that while we were shooting in the churches, it was very important that we lit through the windows. Um, and when we could not light through the windows to, create light that was indicative of this sort of godly light that comes through the windows of a church, which in my estimation are always built with sort of this idea of how light and shadow will play within the room at any given point during the day. And so it was um, a joyous creative act to be able to sort of create, recreate 
this kind of church light, mm -hmm. which is so specific. Um, and we used a lot of like cinematic tools, like always having haze in the air, mm. playing with like differing color temperature, utilizing the thickness of the glass on the windows, whether they be stained glass or just sort of these like diffuse, um, like iron wrought window mm. fixtures. Um, and to sort of give everything that happens within the context of a church, the quality of light that is representative of being within a church. I was just gonna, I was gonna go in that direction too, when you said shed light and then, and then talking about this, um, cause it is very particular, the, the church light. And, and I do think that you've replicated it very well, but then also, and maybe Mary has experience with this too, but like, it's really, it's a really popular thing to talk about in Jesus camps. <laughs> Mary, which Mary and I both have experience in, I was like in youth ministry in college and stuff. And uh, it's a really, I would love to know Mary if you also heard this story, but it's a really like common thing to, to talk about, to retell the same like urban legend almost about like this, like stained glass windows to use stained glass windows as this uh, narrative device about being like, oh, well stained glass window is um, lots of different fragments and like the glass has been broken, but then put back together, but that's how the light gets in. And like, you talk yeah. about like your own conversion story or like being broken and, and like being like a sinner, but then you have like light coming through. Anyway, so church light is, <laughs> and that is, They're just it's ripping such a off Leonard Cohen. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like one person, one millennial person who, you know, now in, in the year 2021 would be about age 42, but, you know, 10, 20 years ago was in college and telling the story, but they had, like, internalized, like, the Leonard Cohen song. But the, people people use that. I mean, I don't know. and and All the time. Yeah. 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 And it's just, like, such a – the church light, like, it's, it's there and everybody experiences it, but then it's also um, – mythologized in this way in in a very like arena church youth ministry jesus camp way too um you think about the light anyway i just wanted yeah. to share that to bit <laughs> no i think i do um, remember that being brought up yeah i mean it's huge it's a huge part of the catholic church stained glass lighting no i have this um image which i realize is is pointless in this medium but um <laughs> but this is something that we built Whoa. this is my gaffer david williamson and we built a frame of colored gels that we could use to shine light through um so that we could sort of have a moving stained glass window that we mm. could bring in to sort of uh shed this kind of light on on different characters as we move through the space and we're not necessarily near a motivated window. Yeah, which is that's really cool. Kind of, that's really, you cool. know, it's like an interesting thing to like have such a, a broad spectrum of color and sort of insert it into a space that is mostly filled with daylight and it becomes this sort of like othered light yeah. that is, you know, for lack of a better word, supernatural. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. 
I, I mean, you know, the Catholic Church is like the original cultural appropriators of witchcraft and pagan witchcraft. So for sure, it's really, I mean, it is really powerful magic. <laughs> I say that yeah. that's my refraining chorus throughout this entire season is just like pagans, uh, witches, <laughs> priests are, are witches. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. You know, even things like I, one thing that sticks with me is uh, like Amaro in Italy, originally created and made by little medieval nonas, um, you know, in their house, brewing stuff. And then monks yeah. took it over, um, called all of these little grandmas witches. And uh, they were the only ones allowed to make a morrow <laughs> because like, you know, they thought it had healing properties, but really then they just started making money by selling booze. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, the, I think about that a lot. <laughs> a little note stirring there. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. The witch, the witch trials in Abiquiu, New Mexico, which happened in the 1750s. Um, it was like the, they, I think they hanged six people, which is like the second, I mean, it, it's like the second largest witch hunt after Salem, which is like not, that's a, such a dumb statistic, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, these, like, these priests are uh, really, scared of and wanting to harness the power of indigenous uh traditional herbalism and so they label them as witches they get permission from uh from the pope and to to perform exorcisms on them to arrest them things like that um yeah wow. <laughs> yeah it's a great book it's called witches of abiquiu it documents this entire thing it's i'm going yeah, to read that it's really great but no, I really like the, I like the idea of like a mobile stained glass window and it's sort of like, it's very, uh, it's, it's abstract. It looks like a Piet Mondrian painting. It's very. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and, and not dissimilar to that concept is, you know, we also did this thing of, um, you know, the opposite of, of church yeah. lighting, um, in a few scenes where we used like neon neon color keys to come in to sort of uh represent you know the shedding off of the i don't know of the of the church of the thing God. of the, yeah. pap the papal supremacy um and uh yeah and, and sort of using these kind of like sexually ambiguous like color combinations of like pink and blue and red um to illustrate something, you know, the, the individual um, separated from the church. Um, there's a sequence in the middle of the film where we have, you know, every one of our collaborators like shown, literally shown in a different light mm. that separates them from, from the church. Um, and, and that sequence culminates in Ed Gavigan sort of standing up as the rest of the crowd sits down mm. and a hard sort of heavenly light backlighting him and creating this halo mm that separates him um i don't know light light as a tool is so powerful and in motion 
is able to communicate something that is like so otherwise illusory. Yeah, I mean, I think when watching it, it did, if you could feel this like change, yeah, the changing nature of the light throughout each shot. And um, it really nicely reflected, I guess, the, the complicated emotions that each of the collaborators was going through at any given time during those scenes, which it, you know, seemed like for anyone, it would be really fast moving, you know, like overwhelming, like we talked about before. And so there was this like nice, like, it, yeah, it just was a nice interplay between those two. Um, I just went to my bookshelf um, because I had to, I had to make another, yet another book recommendation. It's a really word and light seeing, hearing and religious discourse, um, which I've only made it, you know, maybe a quarter of the way into, but it taught, it's a, it's a huge reference about how light is, makes up the religious Catholic religious discourse. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and just, you know, the way that it influenced artists in, in Renaissance and post-Renaissance, um, Renaissance into Baroque, I guess. Uh, and neoclassical and the way that the artists uh, metabolized religion and re and represented religion represented the religious discourse through their use of light and how it was such a that technique I mean I guess it's kind of like chicken and egg but like the light the lighting technique of renaissance painting and what you can do to the depth of a of an image how that uh, has a symbiotic relationship it's it creates the religious discourse as much as the religious discourse creates the use of light. Yeah, I mean, absolutely true. I mean, I'll, you know, take it back to Caravaggio, <laughs> but like, um, you know, that idea of like Chiroscuro single source lighting and the the way that it plays is certainly, you know, the, the same thing as if you go to like Notre Dame or like the church in Delft or like any of these sort of like very grand Romanesque churches um, where you'll have just pools of light in a sea mm -hmm. of shadow. Um, and it is impossible to separate that from like the idea of the mm -hmm. spiritual because it is being positioned so poetically, you know, and it is, it is unnatural. Yeah. And that, you know, galvanizes within us as something beautiful because it takes us out of what is, you know, our day-to-day -day hoi polloi mm -hmm. and shows us something that is like truly magic, you know? And it's this this concept of like, oh, magic exists. That must be what religion is. I should follow this <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. But I do think that humans are innately spiritual and have a desire to 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 create magic within themselves. And so and, and so it's it's quite amazing the the power that Christianity, but also Judaism, also Islam, the the this like representational power of like like harnessing that magic and putting it into ritual or not even putting it into ritual, but putting it into into art, into an artistic representation to to drive it home, to motivate it, to keep it lasting for. Certainly. And I, and I think your, your original use of the word ritual was probably correct because I think as human beings, we mm -hmm. like adhere ritual to everything. And certainly in religion, 
uh, to the highest order, but even like ingesting art, you know, there's a ritual to going to the movies. There's a ritual to going to a museum, the way that you handle yourself, the way you sort of move through these spaces. Um, yeah, I think the whole, the whole thing is that idea of, you know, ritual and giving an order to things and sort of buying into that magic that, you know, may or may not be there. Yeah, magic. <laughs> There's always a point um, in these recordings where it just like becomes a conversation among friends, which is great. I love it, but it's always, <laughs> that's always the best part. <laughs> we have a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I could go on forever too about humans being visual, being visual creatures and like eyesight being a, so much a part of human evolution. And the and so like the reason why, no wonder we worship light which also carries over to mm -hmm. photography and cinema and like using light to illustrate a story. Anyway, wow, I could nerd out forever. Uh <laughs> yeah, same. No, I mean, listening to that makes me imagine like, you know, all this religious iconography and like the idea of like yeah. the halo, which is really just mm -hmm. the sun, um, you know, always cast behind Jesus's head or behind an angel's head in this this idea of, you know, looking towards the sun and then, you know, having this figure there automatically being in what was the original spotlight. Robert, did you watch Midnight Mass on Netflix? I did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be, we, Mary and I will be talking about that in depth later on, but um, uh, yeah, there is there's a big use of light behind Certainly. The, the vampire's head. <laughs> it i was freaking out when i started watching it and i was like texting mary like we have to talk about this <laughs> <laughs> great and we definitely do <laughs> um mary do you have any more no i mean i think this has been such a lovely conversation um and thank you robert for bringing all of this to it because it, you know it, it's i've I mean, I highly recommend anyone to watch this movie, but it was also just really nice to talk about, um, I guess, the behind the scenes of making of, because you could tell how thoughtful and how careful the film is in a lot of ways. And it's, yeah, it's great to hear all of that inside knowledge. It's um, especially because, you know, it's so in theme with what we're doing this season, but um, to hear about the image making itself, you know, um, is really in line. Yeah, thank you. I mean, thank you. It was truly a delight to be able to to share it, um, and you know, it was it was like a privilege for me to be able to to work on this film and to work with Robert Green and Bennett Elliott and all of our collaborators um, because these are stories that need to be told and should be heard, um, and so having like a platform like Netflix or like Sad Girl Syllabus <laughs> to allow uh, same level to allow. Or same exact, sometimes I get the two confused. Um, <laughs> but to be able, you know, to get the word out about these things, um, you know, adds to the dialogue. And it is a, a vital dialogue that needs to be had to change um, what some of the problems in this fucked world are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so it, it is streaming on Netflix. Everybody should go watch it. I, <laughs> we encourage, we endorse anybody to go watch it. Um, to close out these episodes in this series, we like to do a segment called the Trad Catholic Corner, <laughs> where we talk about um, religious influencers and sort of like bring it on back around this idea of now there's religious influencers have been around for hundreds of years, but now in this age of internet, it's um, it's really interesting to take a look back at some of these or to take a look at some of these Instagram pages or TikTok pages that are uh, that really proselytize and put forth um, Christian Catholic uh, iconography mm -hmm. and ideas thought. Um, anyway, the Trad Catholic Corner for today, um, I wanted to, to just speak to this sister, an Episcopalian nun, um, who is on TikTok, and her handle is Nonsense for the People. And she, she's really, I mean, I love nuns. I love sisters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and, um, and, but she's, she's really, she's, she's great. She is, um, I think that she is authentic as well. And I think that she is coming from a deep, deeply real place in her heart, but she is also really good at the, at the Christian PR. Um, she's a really good asset mm -hmm. for Christian PR, but, uh, cause she just like takes you inside the life of a sister in a convent and she like films, she does all the like sort of TikTok trends that, um, you know, film your cat doing this thing kind of thing. And she'll do that with like the cats who live in the convent, but like the cats are named sister Elizabeth or something. <laughs> <laughs> She's like sort of ordained the cats into the, into the sisterhood. But, um, and she also shows like illuminated manuscripts that the nuns have done and things like that. So she's great. I mean, I think there's a really interesting, cause this is, uh, a different kind of figure I feel like on the internet than we've talked about previously and we'll talk about but um it is kind of eye-opening because it's like a little peek into a world that's I mean generally cloistered and closed off to everybody else um <laughs> yeah she's not so much uh I mean obviously there is a total method and reason for her putting this out there in the world and that that is to bring people in um to the church but it's not quite as like a proselytizing as we see other influencers and like literal preaching mm -hmm. um but uh mm. yeah it's it's sort of like almost wholesome um <laughs> uh in this like engagement with wholesome. uh the convent i don't know convents always trip me up <laughs> they're fun weird little places yeah anyway well thank you so much robert thank you this was such a delight for me Aww. and thanks thank mary you. always <laughs>